Yeah, we're back. We're live at the four o'clock block on a given Monday. Uh, this is uh, transitional justice. And we're talking today about health and peace building. This is very important, not only in Colombia, that's where we're going to focus, but everywhere. Health and peace building, it's kind of like infrastructure. Okay, and our special guest is from Columbia, but he's actually at Northwestern University taking a PhD in sociology. His name is Alejandro Castillo. We've talked to him before. Hi, Alejandro. How are you? Thank you for joining the show. Hi, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. Doing well. Thank you. So, um, you know, one, one of the things that I get out of the write-up on this is that uh, although we thought a deal had been made with the FARC in Colombia, um, it's not perfect. And it requires further attention. And part of that attention is uh, health services. And you worked on that in Colombia. Can you talk about it? Absolutely, Jay. So I, I completely agree. Uh, I don't think there's a perfect deal, as, as many lawyers would, would agree on, I guess. Um, the deal in Colombia had very strong features, but uh, its implementation has hit some rocky uh, spots, in particular with what is related with uh, physical security of the former combatants of, of the FARC. That would be one of the main concerns. And also, uh, like uh, violent threats or life uh, threats against uh, social leaders and social movements that are still ongoing or rampant in, in some areas of the country. Um, however, in many other areas, implementation has been robust and it's ongoing. And as, as with everything in transitions, you know, it's, it's a, a continuous challenge. And I think that everybody involved is doing their best. Yeah, you say transitions and indeed, you know, the subject, the title of our show, our series is Transitional Justice, but it occurs to me talking to you that mm, life is transition. Uh, the only thing that's permanent is change. And transition is change. Transition is change in Colombia. It's everywhere. And certainly it moves faster. The changes are more profound, uh, sometimes more deadly else, elsewhere to wit, you know, Ukraine. Um, but there's always change. And so I guess my question is, um, if I were to find an imperfect move to democracy in Colombia, uh, and I wanted to help make it more perfect, a more perfect union, if you will. I've heard that. Uh, so, and I want, and I, and I, and I knew something about healthcare, healthcare services, doctors, medicine, hospitals. You know, healthcare infrastructure, if you want. Um, would that be a salient piece of improving the deal with the FARC, or bringing the FARC more to the table, of having greater concessions with them? Um, and improving, thus improving the democracy as it is in Colombia? So I think this is a very good question, Jay. And, and I wouldn't really focus it on, on how to improve the deal with the FARC, which has been signed and it's being implemented. But I would focus on how you can deploy health services and improve the robustness of health services in rural areas in remote areas of the country where conflict has been traditionally present and where in some uh, redux uh, it, it still is even after the demobilization of the of the FARC as an armed group. Um, actually, some years ago, the Ministry of Health in Colombia launched this new initiative called uh, a special model for dispersed rural areas, uh, uh, MIAS in, in Spanish. And the 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 bed under like that had like the underpinning bed of the model was to understand that in these remote rural areas you can't 
really hope that health is gonna uh, work as in urban areas where if you have a health condition, you go to the hospital and then, or you go to a physician's uh, office and you, you help, you hope to get treated. In these very dispersed areas, what you need is more of the state coming to the people because these are people that live eight, 10, 12 hours away from maybe in some cases, a couple of days away from the nearest you know, urban um, outpost. And so you're not gonna go there to get your, I don't know, health pressure checked up. You're not gonna get, get, go there for uh, a mild pain because it's too far away, it's expensive, it's risky sometimes. But instead you could have brigades of public health uh, company like physicians and teams that could uh, like do rounds uh, um, on the territory reaching this far uh, away communities. And this has two impacts, one obvious one, health, but it has a democracy enhancing impact as well because these communities, they don't interact much with the state. You're building state presence in these areas. And in the few instances where they do interact with the state, it is often with the military, which is not the best way to engage with state services. So having health professionals, health teams that go to them and give them a different vision of what the state can do for them and give them a sense of inclusion, give them a sense of building trust. It's not only crucial for improving any public health indicators, but it's crucial for improving the state of democracy. So I would tell you that if I had to do a bet, it would be on, on deploying rural health teams on the most like remote areas of the country. You know, we, uh, we've talked with one, uh, one Pablo Tello, do you know him? He's a lawyer in Bogota. And um, his thing for his law firm is to build infrastructure. He organizes public-private partnerships. He brings in capital from a lot of places in the world. Um, and and uh, he creates uh, what you call legal structures uh, to build infrastructure in the notion. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's an important uh, notion that you can, you can improve the country, the democracy in the country, by improving, it's what you were saying a minute ago, um, by improving the infrastructure. So for example, if I have government services and I want to deliver on a show the people in the hinterland and in, in the far reaches of the country, in the, you know, in the jungles, in the mountains, whatever it is, um, then I have to get there. So I need roads, I need airports, <clears throat> and I need telecommunications. Um, you know, I need, I need to have security. Uh, and that means, I suppose, the army. Um, but I also, and I, and I guess what I'm getting out of this is I need healthcare because that will show people that I care. Uh, it'll show people that the government, yes, the government can help them uh, live a better life, not die, um, provide life-saving you know, things. And so it, it falls right within uh, Juan Tello's uh, um, you know, program of improving the country um, by improving the infrastructure. And, I mean, and the general rule would be um, better infrastructure, better economy, better country. And healthcare is part of that. So you agree? I, I agree with the main premise that improving infrastructure is crucial, but uh, I would maybe also reframe it uh, in, in the current discussions that are happening in or had happened in the past months in the US around the infrastructure bills that uh, were presented by the government for Congress. And it's to maybe de-emphasize the notion that infrastructure necessarily means uh, bricks, necessarily mean, means building 
like roads or building buildings. Uh, infrastructure is also public health, like public services, including health services, of course. It's not only, it's not about building hospitals because I, I used to think um, similarly to, to like this brick centered way of infrastructure. And what I quickly realized while I was working with the Ministry of Health in Colombia is that even if you build a hospital in these faraway regions, it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to find uh, doctor, nurses, and a whole set of staff that will permanently be there because it's so far away that people don't stay. And, and even if they stayed, their density of population is so small that the health outpost would be empty most of the time, um, if not pretty much all the time. So infrastructure is crucial, I agree with you, but it doesn't mean building hospitals or building operating rooms. Infrastructure in this case, in this very remote isolated regions, means first and foremost, deploying services, making the professionals get there. And they don't have to be there permanently because you don't go to the doctor every day. If it's a community of 50, 150 people, you can have a health team, a brigade that goes for three, four, five days. Everybody gets a checkup. Everybody gets their medicines. Everybody gets their prescriptions. And then you need to, I agree with you, deploy the infrastructure so that medicines come, like the, the needed medicines, the prescribed medicines, uh, get to the remote outpost on a, on a frequent basis. But yeah. it's not only about building bridges or building hospitals in this case. It's also about thinking of infrastructure as, as services, and in this case, human service. Yeah, I take your point, absolutely. And you know, in the case of health, uh, you wouldn't build a, a hospital that'll service 5,000 people when there's only 50 people in the village. Um, you have to adapt it to the, you know, the community that you're serving. Uh, and you, you, can't, you can't have a, a, a formula that applies to one without thinking of mm, the, the other, what you're really applying it to. So that, you know, that takes me to a question, you know, to connect your psych, your sociology, which I, which I dwell on as social psychology myself, um, and democracy. So here I have a person who lives in a village and, you know, his family for generations has died from this, that, the other thing, because they haven't had healthcare. Uh, they haven't had these services, period. And so now the government in Bogota says, uh, you know, we want to deliver healthcare services because we want them to believe in the country, to believe that we here in the capital of the country uh, can do, are doing something for them. Okay? So that's the intention. And then the people at the other end in the little village, they are getting mm, the healthcare, call it infrastructure if you want, uh, the healthcare services. So query, what is the psychological, sociological connection between those services and the way those people in that village see uh, the capital in Bogota, uh, the way they see the possibility of democracy? Well, I think these are very complex questions and uh, I, I can't venture to know exactly what's going on in, in the minds of, of these populations, but. What I can tell you from my experience and having visited some of these regions is that it is all like a feedback cycle. These people many times like voting is either uh, like abstention is very high or voting behaviors respond to very clientelistic uh, relationships with, with politicians and often with frustration and disillusionment because their votes 
do not get translated in better presence from the state in their in their home communities. So providing services, providing health services is a way of breaking these cycles that feed that, that feed themselves uh, in a circular manner. Providing health services is a way of changing the idea that the state does not care about these communities and does not come to these regions and that the state has something to give and hopefully that will mean that also these communities will feel more engaged and willing to give themselves in terms of um, you know state building and uh, recognition of, of the state's authority yeah but there's also a, some, this kind of representative thing in other words um, if if I'm in the the clinic, call it a clinic, okay, in this little village, and I say to the doctor or the healthcare worker, you know, we need more oh widgets here. Mm-hmm. Um, we need you to do this, that, the other thing. Maybe we could use this kind of medicine. Maybe you should come on Tuesdays and Fridays instead of Mondays and Wednesdays. Um, that sort of thing. And the the staffer says yes. Thank you. We take that point. We are completely, um, you know, sympathetic with your wishes here. Now that may not be like voting, okay? But it is responsive. That it is caring about the individual, you know, in the small town, and it is a kind of democracy, at least in the, to the point that the individual who makes the request and has his request granted um, can say, "Gee, they they actually respond to me." We're, we're in a kind of arrangement uh, where I'm not just being handed something. I absolutely agree uh, with this perspective. And, and of course, all of these like tasks are very challenging and these areas are not like easy to access and easy to deploy services in those areas. So it's also getting to get everybody on board with the fact that not everything will be able to be solved in place. So, you know, many times the communities will be like, well, I, I, I need a surgery and I can't have my surgery here, or you need an ICU, or you need, you know, more complicated procedures, but just the scale and the staff is not available to be in those regions. So what do you need is like robust evacuation routes and robust like logistical chains that would allow you to identify early any potential complicated cases in the remote area and be able to tramit them through the like appropriate routes to larger urban outposts. But it's not only about the surgery because many times you get an insurer that's there to pay. In, in Colombia, we have a national uh, insurance health system. It's not, online, it's not very like the US in that sense, but that's only the beginning because even if these people are make it to the city to get the surgery, then they need to go to the follow-up appointment to the doc- with the doctor three, four days afterwards, and they don't have a place to stay. And these are very, you know, remote, rural, often poor communities. They don't have also the money to pay for a place to stay three, four days in the city for the follow-up checkup with the doctor. They don't know what bus to take, how taxis work in that city. They don't know the addresses. They like, they feel lost many times in this context. It's not their hometown, completely understandable. And it's all of those support services that are crucial for health services to be successful. We lived the same experience when we were doing the transition with the FARC. They signed the peace agreement, and then all of a sudden, we had you know thousands of former combatants. They were concentrated upon 26 different encampments around the country. And as a government, we had the responsibility to provide them with health services, health services that they hadn't had access for for decades. 
uh, because they were, you know, rebellious against the state in an insurgent uh, uh, armed conflict. So many times we found them the doctor, we found them the hospital to go to, but they didn't have a way to get there. Also, because in a transition, you have a bunch of additional hurdles, which is their mobility to move is restrained because there is international observers missions that is supposed to check the fulfillment of the agreements and the actual demobilization. There's limitation, there's security threats, so you can't freely move former combatants around the country to a hospital without thinking of potential security implications for their own lives. They're being targeted by many uh, rival groups or you know, people who they, they've wronged during the many years of conflict. It's a very complicated scenario. So I just wanted to underscore the importance of not only health and not only and health not understood necessarily as the building, but as the service, but then all of these ancillary services uh, that are often challenging in uh, inhospitable com uh, conditions, uh, like geographic conditions, like happened uh, what happens in Colombia during uh, the demobilization phase of the park. Mm. Well, I mean, it does sound very complex in a com very complex environment, but it sounds to me that also that the government is saying we will move you we will find a hospital for you and we will take you there. I mean, assuming there are no mm, security implications, uh, we will take you there and we will have you meet your appointment and uh, follow up as necessary and, and have the benefit of, of the original operation, have the benefit of the healthcare that our system can provide. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and that you do this without distinguishing between a member of the FARC and a member of the village. Everybody gets the same. Am I right? That's absolutely right. So these former combatants were moving into uh, regions to settle down and demobilize where there were some local communities that they themselves had very scarce access to the state infrastructure, the state health services, because they were, these were remote areas. So did, we did not want to create new inequities. We did not want to create new uh, you know, wedges between the, the communities. So the services that we had to deploy had to be equal for everybody. And that was, it was like a beautiful metaphor if you think it in a way like these were combatants that had fought the state for close to 60 years. For them, the state was some, something or someone that wanted to kill them. And now the state was there to actually save their lives to take them to a hospital, to give them a different image of what the state was to them. And that was like beyond the health, like the immediate health benefits of providing healthcare, that was one of the big strengths of providing a comprehensive healthcare approach to the early demobilization phases, because it allows you to completely reshape and resignify uh, for the former combatants who or what the state is. And, Resignified that relationship between the now demobilized combatants and the state who used to be the enemy. It's beautiful. It really is. And furthermore, I would I would make a guess and say that this was an important part of the effort to you know, bring the FARC into society, um, because uh, that that is the kind of experience that people remember. FARC people remember for the rest of their lives. Um, and they and they also think it's a beautiful thing. Am I right? Did it have a salient effect? Do you have a metric on how many people um, you know bought into that and accepted it and 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 were you know uh, positively affected by it? 
So I, I think that you're right in the sense that these are the kinds of experiences that people will remember and that, they, that, that they're so powerful that they will shape their image of the state. However, here I wanna maybe highlight a risk and it's that if you do it well, then it plays out wonderfully because they're gonna remember a good experience. They're gonna remember the state of somebody who came to help with a, you know, an efficient service. However, if you do it poorly, because perhaps you didn't consider this was an important, like you're, you're, you're doing a peace process, you're thinking of guns, you're thinking of you know, not committing any more crimes, you're thinking of transitional justice, you're thinking of the victims, you're thinking of many things, but often you're not thinking of, oh, what about the health services for the former combatants? Many times that's not in the top of your list. And so if things go well, this can be a beautiful experience that will resignify in a positive way the relationship with the state because it's one of the first and early ways in which they engage with the state after demobilizing. But if you don't do it correctly, if the services are delayed or if there are no services or things don't go as planned, then it will be memorable, but not in the way you wish. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's the old story. Um, you, you bring the magic of modern medicine, somebody who has no clue on how it works or the risks involved. Uh, you do an operation that fails and this individual dies on the table. Uh, and, and his family and friends or her family and friends are going to say, hmm, this didn't work at all. We are really ticked off at you. And uh, I wouldn't want to be the doctor uh, in that circumstance. So, yeah, yeah and it was, it's a matter of giving informed consent and all that. So I want to I want to shift. We have a few minutes left and I do want to shift for a minute to the, you know, the the news that that occupies us all these days, and that is Ukraine. And um, I, I know you're not an expert in Ukraine, and I'm not either, except that I, I, I read about it. Um, but I want to I see if any of these principles would apply or could apply to the, what do you want to call it, the, 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 the peaceful transition, the transition that we know must come uh, in Ukraine, because uh, it's being destroyed. And on the health side, that's where I want to, you know, talk to you. Um, on the health side, we know the Russians have destroyed most of the hospitals. And we also know that they wounded and killed and maimed uh, an enormous number of people, which they are continuing to do today while we, while we speak. And so the question is, and I've asked a lot of architects and engineers about this. I've asked contractors and builders. I have not asked a sociologist yet. You're the first one. <laughs> When you take these principles of sociology and you try to knit back together a culture and a country, a society that has been damaged to this effect and whose healthcare system has been damaged, if not destroyed, um, how do you do that in a way that works? Where do you start? And, and can you be successful at all in a pile of rubble? I think... It is important to consider the health effects uh, beyond the, of course, tragic loss of life, the health effects that war has. It also, it is important to acknowledge that here, like the Ukrainian case poses a very different scenario in the sense that it is an interstate war or conflict. And so after the aggressions end, what you would hope is you're not looking for victims and aggressors to live together in the same country. 
that that is not the outcome that you're looking for, which is the most typical outcome in an in like internal conflict in a civil war. The communities that were all like adversaries in the past need to find ways to build a future together. This is not exactly the same logic uh, with interstate uh, wars. So that's the first difference that I would that I would call. But what we know is that beyond the loss of life, any war, interstate or internal, has a public health uh, undesirable outcomes, not only in terms of those who die or are directly wounded, but in terms of those who lose access to health infrastructure, those who have high tension, chronic illnesses, those who have preventable conditions that are no longer preventable anymore because they don't have access to the appropriate health care. It's Say nothing to, of infectious disease and exposure uh, on an immune system basis. Absolutely. And, and here it's important to think of maybe a, a good analogy. It's uh, COVID and schooling. We know that there are going to be lasting effects to you know, children's schooling uh, outcomes because of COVID, not because what the, the days of school that they already missed, it's going to mark them for life. It's similar in a war context with populations that even if they're not directly affected by the violence of the war in terms of being injured, they are losing access, they're losing access to school, except in this case, access to healthcare. And that is going to leave profound marks in the Ukrainian population. So it's, of course, building back hospitals and doing it fast is going to be crucial. But it's not only thinking of the day zero and forward, it's thinking of the scars in, in terms of physical health and mental health that such a crude conflict can leave uh, for an entire country. It's also a self-image thing, isn't it? You know, I always think that if you look at one individual person, you can do a kind of clinical analysis of where he or she is and whether he's happy or not, depressed or not, what have you. It's, it's, that's for the, the, the moment, the private moment with the psychologist. But you take that one experience, that one, um, you know, mm, lack of optimism, depression, and you multiply it by, say, 40 million. And now you have a country where nobody believes they're going to be healthy anymore, where nobody believes their, their life expectancy will be anywhere near as long as it was, where nobody believes that the daily you know, life on the planet will be as pleasant and productive. Um, and the same with their family, their kids, their spouses. So that becomes more of a social uh, sociological, psychological question. You take a culture of people who are all kind of pessimistic about their own health, life expectancy, quality of life. What happens? I think you, you're uh, highlighting a very important point. And this is one of the big challenges of any big shock or big event. It could be war or it could be a pandemic. And it's uh, how it reshapes the way our social relationships are built, how it reshapes our long-term expectations. And to be honest, Jay, I don't think that we have satisfying answers to how to go back to the previous stage because the previous stage is not attainable. Maybe that's not even the right question. It's acknowledging that we're not gonna go back. We have to go forward and forward is gonna look hopefully better than what it is right now, but it's not gonna be exactly the same as what used to be. It's gonna be like, a new set of interactions, a new set of social rules, expectations, behaviors that are going to come out of, uh, well, history, long history for, uh, uh, for, from a national perspective, and then how that history is shaped and impacted by a horrible shock, in this case, uh, the Ukrainian conflict. Trauma. 
Trauma. I, I'm, I'm thinking of the word trauma, but I'm not thinking of it in terms of the emergency room. I'm thinking of it in terms of trauma to an entire population, to millions, actually, directly and indirectly, millions of people. And that has an effect. So what you've learned, okay, in Bogota, in Colombia, and in sociology in your PhD, um, where does the issue of healthcare fall on the list of priorities uh, assuming that we all have, and I say we, I mean the whole Western world, um, has in terms of trying to rebuild Ukraine. Is it the top? Is it the very first priority? Uh, or is it not the first priority? In my experience, health uh, services are often not at the top of um, reconstruction efforts or the agendas for transition. Um, there's uh, just in, in internal conflict, there's justice concerns, there's uh, economic re, like, uh, rebooting or economic uh, launch initiatives, there's maybe building hospitals, building infrastructure, but not necessarily thinking on what those hospitals need to do. Um, that, that, that comes as a second order priority or something that is often not looked at. Um, so I, I would call for, for anybody who's thinking about these problems in Ukraine and elsewhere to bring back health to the center, not only because health is important in and of itself, but because health, and I'm, I'm taking a sentence here from uh, the PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, uh, health is a bridge for peace. Uh, health can build peaceful relations and can resignify and knit uh, community relationships uh, back when they were severed. Um, these were some examples that they did uh, during the Central American transitions uh, in Nicaragua and Salvador, which we uh, were inspired by and we researched on when we were designing our approach in the Colombian transition um, with the former combatants of the FARC. Health is a bridge for peace. What a wonderful idea. Um, if you achieve it. <laughs> if, well, at least it's a vision. At least you want to achieve it, which takes me to my last question to you, Alejandro. So there you were working for the government in Bogota. Um, they were um, you know, bringing health services to people around the country. Uh, and that's uh, altruistic in the sense that, you know, the, the government needed to do that. And there was a positive effect of it. Um, and then next time we look, we find you're in Northwestern sociology. So connect it up for me. Um, why did you, you know, leave healthcare services in Colombia and uh, study sociology? What is it about sociology um, that uh, makes you want to, you know, study it and uh, that is consistent with what you were doing before? And what do you want to do with it when you finish your PhD? By the way, somewhere in your answer, tell me what you're writing about in your PhD. Absolutely, Jay. Uh, so I think the thing that connects both of the things is that both policy and academia, and in particular sociology, seek to understand how the human relationships work and how we can improve them, how we can improve the lives of entire communities or countries, hopefully. Um, you know, and being in the policymaking sphere, I felt that sometimes we are so concerned with what we need to do now to solve very urgent problems that we lack distance and space to like step back and really think or look from a 10,000 feet view how these problems are shaped. That's what moved me into wanting to do a, a PhD in sociology. 
and hopefully my hope is that I can engage in in public in in public uh, debate and uh, maybe back in policy hopefully one day once I've um, you know completed my PhD and use my research in ways leverage my research in ways that will shape and improve uh, the lives of many that's that's the hope um, and to close to your question I'm right now just focusing on studying the relationships between the pharmaceutical companies and physicians uh, here in the United States uh, and how those uh, networks of, of influence between companies and physicians uh, are created and change over time uh, over the years so based on on different types of, of shocks so it's not just sociology it's much I mean, more than that <laughs> absolutely let's hope so <laughs> one of these days Alejandro you're going to get a call from the uh, the uh, the White House they're going to want to tap your your thinking about these things especially about the drug companies and the relationship of the drug companies to you know the the state of mind of the community uh, there's so many problems to work out but i think you're in a place where you can actually have an effect on and and your healthcare and sociology combination is really uh, powerful stuff so um uh, but i would i would hold up on on moving to ukraine just now okay <laughs> absolutely and uh well thank you for your good wishes jay and i hope they're all true yeah, thank you, Alejandro Castillo, who joins us from what Chicago, uh, and who is uh, from Colombia, uh, from Bogota, and part of, uh, or at least familiar with Project Expedite Justice. Uh, thank you Absolutely. so much. Appreciate you being on the show, Alejandro. Thank you, Jay. Have a good day. Aloha.